0: Luke chapter 7 and it's on page 730 and we're reading up to verse 35 Looking forward to what Scott has to tell us today about this passage So we start with the faith of the centurion Luke chapter 7 and we're going through the book of Luke at the moment When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you. I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, And she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still He said, that's Jesus, Young man, I say to you, get up The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent, sorry, Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to, into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, There is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. The Lord bless his word.
1: All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we want to thank you so much, so much, Heavenly Father, for bringing us together this morning as your people around your word. And Father, we just pray now for the ministry of your Spirit, that uh, he would be working in our minds and our hearts, uh, granting us spiritual insight and understanding that we would know Jesus better and that we would walk in a way that is worthy of you and we pray that all the things that I say will be true to your word. We pray that our response would be true to the uh, grace that we've received in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. We tend, I think, to respect people who stand firm for that which is right. We respect people who uh, stand up for the truth irrespective of what it may Cost them personally, and that is one of the reasons why the Herod family is not very well regarded in the Bible. In Luke chapter seven, Herod the Great, who was the ruler at the time of the birth of Jesus, was long since uh, had long since died, and his kingdom had been split up into uh, into sectors. And now his son, Herod Antipas, uh, sometimes referred to as Herod the Tetrarch, was in charge of Galilee. And as a ruler, he was well known for his uh, significant public works programs, his projects. Uh, In the year 20 AD, he constructed a brand new city, which he built on what turned out to be an old graveyard area, uh, along the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a beautiful city. It had beautiful buildings. It became his capital city. He named it Tiberius after the emperor at the time, the emperor in Rome, and he had a symbol uh, for the... um, Uh, It was because of this city that he uh, developed a symbol for himself, a symbol which he adopted. It was the symbol of the reed. You know, the reeds, the plants that grow along the water's edge. Uh, He adopted a reed to symbolize himself. Now, why would he do that? Why a reed? Well, there uh, there was a story, a fable, a uh, jewish fable at the time uh, about an angel who had planted a reed in a sea and around this the reed had developed a sandbar and the sandbar grew bigger and bigger and became an island became land and on that was built a great city and so for herod the reed symbolized his greatness of a builder as a builder of a city But a reed can also be a different kind of symbol, can't it? A reed can symbolise not greatness, but can symbolise weakness. Uh, A reed can be a symbol of someone who bends according to the wind of popular opinion. A reed can be a symbol of someone who acts wrongly for the sake of pleasing other people. And it was in that sense, that unintended sense, that the reed actually became a very apt symbol for Herod Antipas. Now, we see this in his relationship with John the Baptist. Because as a true prophet of God, uh, John did not bend his message in order to suit his audience. He did not water down his message of repentance, no matter the cost. And John was no man pleaser. Uh, even if the man involved was Herod himself, who was an adulterer. Uh, Herod had married the wife, he had divorced his own wife in order to marry the wife of his half-brother, uh, who also happened to be his niece and his half-brother's niece, by the way. Uh, in Luke chapter three in verse 19 we're told that John the Baptist uh, stood up to Herod he confronted him Uh, he rebuked him for this sin and for many other sins now the result of that of course if you don't like the message what do you do you shoot the messenger and far from repenting uh, what Herod did was he threw John into prison which wouldn't have been a great prison by the way I don't think it would have Got a very high ranking from Amnesty International, uh, a Herodian prison. And uh, it was then, uh, as he was in prison, that there was this lustful birthday party, you might recall, where Herod wanted his uh, young stepdaughter to dance before his friends. In return, he gave in to her mother's demand for the head of John the Baptist to be served on a platter. Better to murder John than to lose face in front of his friends, like a reed that bends whatever way the wind is blowing. Yet when we come to today's passage, an issue about the firmness of John the Baptist actually arises. A conversation occurs between some disciples of John the Baptist and Jesus, which may have led some observers to the conversation to, to wonder if John was starting to bend like a reed. Let me show it to you in, if you've got your Bibles open at Luke 7. Uh, in verse 18... Uh, uh, after Jesus has done certain things, which we'll talk about in a moment, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord. That's the first time Jesus is referred to as the Lord in uh, Luke's Gospel. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? There you go, get the question twice. But you see the question, don't you? And in one sense, it's an unexpected question because uh, this is John. This is John the Baptist. John who had baptised Jesus out in the the wilderness. John who had been present when the, the heavens opened and the voice from heaven bellowed out saying... You are my son. This is John. And now he is asking, is Jesus really the one? Or should we be expecting someone else to come? Why? Why would John doubt? Is he too a bit like a reed? The key to uh, understanding that is to consider why it was that he asked his question. Because remember where he is at the time. He's in Herod's prison. He's facing probable execution. The the lustful party hasn't happened at this stage, as far as we know, but uh, uh, he's facing probable execution because we know from Matthew's Gospel that Herod really wanted to execute John, but he was afraid of what the people might think. What he was after was an excuse, a trigger, to be able to do it. So John is looking... Death in the face. And uh, when in verse 18, Luke tells us that his disciples have been out amongst the people and seen Jesus and, and they've reported to him, quote, all these things which Jesus had been doing. And it's the report of all these things which Jesus has been doing which evokes the question, well, are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? Now, what are the things which Jesus has been doing? Last week, we finished off the Sermon on the Plain. And after the Sermon on the Plain, in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through to 17, Luke records two key events. In the first event... Jesus blesses a centurion. A centurion, a, a leader of a hundred soldiers, who was based in Capernaum, had a problem. One of his valued servants was gravely sick. And the centurion had sent some, some of the Jewish elders, some of the leaders of Capernaum, to ask Jesus to come and to heal the servant. Now, what do we know about this centurion? Well, firstly, he seems to be an honorable man. Verse 4. In, in verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, saying, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. He deserves to have his servant healed, according to these Jewish elders. Now, a sceptic might think, well, um, what's really going on here uh, might be patronage, that is, the uh, centurion has done good things for the people of Capernaum with the expectation that they will serve him, so I've, I've built you your synagogue now you've got to go, go and put a good word in with Jesus to get him to come and heal my servant. So someone might, a sceptic might say that, but I think that there is more to this man than that because secondly, not only is he a, uh, an honourable man, he seems to be a humble man because we read uh, in verse 6 and following, that when Jesus approached his house, that he sent some of his friends to, to stop Jesus. Uh, to, uh, he says to, Jesus, to say to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself. You don't have to come under my roof. And the reason for that is that he considers himself to be unworthy for Jesus to come into his house. Interesting because the Jewish leader says that this man deserves for you to do this. The man himself says, I actually don't deserve for you to even come under my roof. So he seems to be a humble man. The third thing we learn is that he is a trusting man. He trusts the authority of Jesus' word. He says, you don't actually have to come into my house because... As a centurion, he knows that those in authority only have to speak a word and things happen. Hence my little joke with Peter earlier on. Right? Those in authority only have to speak a word for things to happen. Jesus does not need to come. He only has to speak a word for the servant to be healed that is the view of the centurion and jesus is amazed uh, in verse 9 in verse 9 he says when jesus heard this he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following he said this he said i tell you i have not found such great faith even in israel You see this is probably the most important thing that we learn about this centurion and that is that as a centurion in in the Roman army he was not Jewish. He was most probably Roman. He may not have been Roman because the Romans did have uh, people in their army who were from the lands that they had conquered and some of them rose to high positions. But what we do know is that he's a Gentile. He is a Gentile man. He's a man who has not been brought up with the scriptures. He's not been brought up with the knowledge of of God. He has not been brought up with the, the law and the prophets and the promises of God. And yet, with what he does know about God, he trusts in Jesus He trusts in Jesus so much that he says that Jesus actually has authority to speak a word and the servant will be healed and his trust is now outshining that of the Jews. And he's a Gentile and the servant is healed. So that's the first event. The second event is where Jesus blesses a poor widow. And note actually with that first event that the focus is not so much on the servant who was healed. The focus is actually on the centurion and his faith. And uh, it's true in the second event as well uh, that the, uh, the, the focus is not so much on the person who Jesus performed a miracle on. It's more about uh, another person. It's about a widow Uh, who Jesus blesses. Uh, In Jesus' day, being a widow, was uh, particularly at a young age, was a uh, a fast track to poverty. And in verses 11 through to 17, Jesus is uh, approaching a town which is called Nain. It it still exists today. You can go to Nain. It's about uh, 14 kilometres south of Nazareth, I understand haven't checked it on Google Earth, but um, you, know, you might want to go home and do that. Uh, and as Jesus approached the, the town gate, there was a funeral pre- procession. Now, the saddest funerals are the funerals of, of young people. Um, I've, I've conducted a few of them, and they are heartbreaking, as many of you know. Uh, no parent wants to outlive their child. No parent wants to be... Bearing their son or their daughter and this one is especially sad because Luke points out he makes a specific mention of this in verse 12 that the deceased is the only son of a widow which means that uh, this lady is now without a, uh, a male provider and male protector she's without a husband and she's without a son and the heart of Jesus we're told went out to her uh, it's um, the the raw word that 's used there means he felt it from his from his guts he was He was gutted uh, for the sake of this of this this poor lady and so what does he do? Well, he reaches out and he touches the coffin. Now you know that when he does that that uh That Jesus is becoming ceremonially unclean by touching a coffin, but he does so, uh, and in doing so, he actually gives life to the to the dead. So it's a, a little bit like the atoning work of Christ on the cross, that he becomes sin for us, so that we might become God's righteousness. He only had to then speak a word, an authoritative word for the young man to sit up and to begin to talk. Now, we can't imagine that, can we? Can you, you know, I've been to some pretty tough funerals and I think, you know, if I had the, if anyone had the power to say to the person, come back to life, what you wouldn't give for that to happen? And here it happens. That which was so final That which was so unchangeable, that which was so devastating, is now reversed. Luke has already reported uh, lepers being healed, um, paralytics walking, blind seeing, uh, demon-possessed people being freed, but this is the first case that's reported of a dead person coming back to life it's extraordinary and in verse 16 those who saw it were in awe of god a great prophet has appeared amongst us they say god has come to help his people and this report spreads all around and this is the report that would have gone back to john the baptist but for john the baptist When his disciples went to the prison and told him about all of these things, he actually seems somewhat disappointed. Uh, His question to Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we be expecting someone else? Now there is a good reason why he asks this question. You see, what did John expect? Well listen to john in the desert speaking about jesus i've printed for you on your outlines there from uh, luke chapter 3 verses 15 to 18 and this is the ministry of john as he's baptizing people by the river and listen into what he was proclaiming Uh, verse 15 the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if john might possibly be the messiah john answered them all I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. That's the good news. <laughs> Burning up, unquenchable fire. Well, there's the, the gathering together of all of the wheat into the barn. That's the good news. But it's a message of judgment, it's a mes- message of punishment. Earlier on in the same chapter in Luke 3, John again says, describes it this way. He says that the, the axe is at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear fruit will be chopped down and will be thrown into the fire. John preached repentance. It was a, a, a baptism of repentance. He preached repentance because of the need for forgiveness because of the coming judgment. For according to the prophet Malachi, uh, after John, in Malachi's chapters 3 and 4, after John, who is the Elijah figure, after the Elijah figure comes, comes the Lord himself in the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. After John the Baptist comes the Lord himself in judgment to establish his kingdom which by the way in the Old Testament mindset is an earthly kingdom Uh, the defeat and the driving out of God's enemies the establishment of God's rule under the rule of God's king uh, much like in the days of Solomon and yet Languishing in a prison, at the hands of the ungodly, John is hearing a story about a a dead boy being raised to life. Well, didn't Elijah do that in 1 Kings chapter 17? He did, didn't he? Um, John, languishing, languishing in prison, is hearing a story about a Gentile Occupying soldier rather than being driven out is being blessed. Where's the judgment? Where's the kingdom? Is there someone else who we should be expecting to come instead? Well, how does Jesus respond to this? <clears throat> In verses. 21 to 23 uh, we're told that uh, at that, that very time Jesus was curing many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirit, he was giving sight to many who were blind and so on and he tells the disciples of John to return to John and to report what it is that they have seen and what it is that they hear that the blind receive sight the lame walk, that those who've got leprosy are cured, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, that the good news is preached to the poor. Report back to John that in Jesus the effects of the fall of Adam are being reversed. Sickness, suffering, demon possession, even death itself Those things which after the judgment comes will no longer trouble God's people in God's kingdom are being manifest in Jesus. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said that when you see these things happening you know that Messiah has arrived. And so they report this back to John. After they've left, in order that no one would think of John as being a, a, a bending reed in the wind, Jesus then turns to the crowd. Now Have a look at this in verse 24. Uh, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to, st- to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. From Malachi chapter 3. What is Jesus saying? Those listening would have understood the political barb in this. He's not like Herod. John the Baptist is not like Herod. He's not a reed swaying in the wind. He he doesn't wear fine clothes. He doesn't wear in in a luxurious palace. He's a prophet and a faithful one. In fact, says Jesus, he's more than a prophet. In verse 28 among those born of woman there is no one greater than John but yet says Jesus the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he now you think well that's that's strange it's a bit of a paradox there isn't it is that the right word to describe that a paradox right. I mean on the one hand he's saying that amongst women there's no one greater that's ever been born than John the Baptist And then on the other hand, he says, well, in actual fact, anyone, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. What does he mean? How can that be? Well, the question I want to ask you is, is John the Baptist an Old Testament figure or is he a New Testament figure? And the answer to that is that he's an Old Testament figure. Uh, He's the greatest. He's the greatest ever Old Testament person because he actually paved the way for the Messiah to come. But yet as a prophet, by the Holy Spirit, John spoke about things which he didn't fully understand. Because he didn't live long enough to be able to understand. He didn't live long enough to experience how it would be that the kingdom of God would come into effect. He didn't live long enough to experience the saving events of the gospel and the beginnings of God's new kingdom of people. The resurrection kingdom, of which the raised boy was a pointer. The worldwide kingdom, which includes Jews and Gentiles, even centurions pointed to by the light of God's kingdom going out to that centurion man. Now, you and I, we live this side, the other side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Which means that we know more about Jesus than John the Baptist ever did. Uh, Even the Uh, The smallest child amongst us, the youngest kid in the Sunday school who knows about Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the church, even the youngest kid in the Sunday school knows more about Jesus and God's kingdom than John the Baptist did. Even the newest Christian who's put their trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and through the Spirit has become a child who knows more than than what John the Baptist did because John the Baptist didn't live long enough and the reason he didn't live long, long enough was because he was no reed in fact he didn't live long enough because he rebuked the reed and in the crowd that day in verse 29 in the crowd that day There was a lot of people there. There was a lot of people, ordinary people, even tax collectors, who had been baptised by John the Baptist. And the fact that they had been baptised by John the Baptist is because they knew that they were offside with God. They knew that they were outside. They knew that they needed to be cleansed. They knew that they didn't want to be judged. And they knew that God's way was right. And by being baptised, they had expressed their repentance. But not everyone had. In verses 30 through to 35, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they didn't get baptised because they didn't think that they needed for John to baptize them. They didn't think that they were sinners in need of cleansing and yes. facing judgment. They had every opportunity to repent. Uh, they had heard John, but they rejected John. they heard Jesus, but they rejected Jesus. And Jesus here uses what is probably a little children's song He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sung a dirge and you did not cry. It's saying, we gave you every opportunity, but you just didn't want to be involved. They heard John, but they rejected John because they said, well, he's a bit strange. You know, he's got a demon. He doesn't eat bread and he doesn't drink wine. They heard Jesus, but they rejected Jesus because they said, well... He's a friend of sinners because he eats bread and he drinks wine. (laughs) You can't have it both ways. The real reason why they rejected Jesus and John was because they just didn't want to repent. They didn't want to turn to God. In verse 30, Luke tells us it was because they rejected God's purposes for their lives. Imagine that being said of you. Imagine that it was said of you that you were a person who had rejected God's purposes for your life. That is dreadful. Friends, when Herod Antipas opened up his new uh, shiny city along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he issued some coins in order to celebrate the occasion. And uh, here's one of those coins. This is a Jewish coin from the first century. And um, I think it's a pruta. And on one side of it, this side here, what we see there is, is a laurel. You know the laurel? That's what goes around the Caesar's head. And inside it you can vaguely work out the uh, letters for Tiberius. So on one side of his brand new coin is honouring the emperor Tiberius. On the other side of his coin, what do you see there? That's the reed, isn't it? That's the symbol of Herod Antipas. Just thought you might like to see that. Friends, let's not be reeds. Let's not be people who bend with the wind, fearing man more than we fear God. Let's not be reeds, living as Christians when we're amongst one another, but living just like the world when we're amongst the world. Let's not be reeds. Let's not be like the religious leaders who had every opportunity But their reasons for rejecting John and rejecting Jesus were simply excuses to avoid God and to reject his purpose for their lives. You know, uh, living as we do on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, what prophets longed to know what prophets spoke about but searched intently to find out how these things would be fulfilled what prophets longed to know we actually do know god has given us his complete revelation of jesus and the kingdom so therefore let us have humble hearts like our fellow gentile the roman centurion Let us be people who trust in the authority of Jesus' word so that we will be people who will experience that which the resurrection of the widow's son pointed to the kingdom of God a kingdom of people from all over the world who name Jesus as the ruler of their lives a people of God who look forward to that day when we will be resurrected, when we will be with our Lord and be with all other members of the kingdom for all of eternity, in that kingdom where there is no sickness, where there is no disease, where there is no death. Let us not be reeds. Let us stand firm for the gospel of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ in whose name we're about to pray. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the uh, testimony and the witness of John the Baptist who called on people to repent and turn back to you. We thank you, Father God, for sending Jesus, for the reversal of the effects of the fall through him, that sickness, sin, disease is all done away with, for those who like the centurion put their trust in your word and so let us Father God have humble hearts we pray that we would be those who affirm to the end and enjoy your eternal kingdom forever and ever let us not be reeds who uh, ebb and flow with the uh, tide of opinion of others let us not fear man more than we fear you Father, let us stand firm, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.